0: This is Isaiah chapter 9 in the Pew Bible. It's on page 600. Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm reading verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, on the throne of David, and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this.
1: Good afternoon, church. Let's... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this Christmas season, the season of celebrating the incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us, I pray, God, that you would give us fresh eyes of faith to see the miracle of the incarnation, not as something that's familiar, Lord, but something that is awesome and powerful, life giving, the very source of our salvation. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word, that we might know you and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. After a hard day of working in the field, sweat streamed down the man's face. He came home and sat down in the shade of a tree with a sigh. Even though it was late in the afternoon, the sun burned with this scorching, merciless heat that left his skin baked and dried. The man turned to his wife, who was nine months pregnant with their first child, and he said, I worked all day, but I don't feel like I really did anything. I just spent all day pulling weeds that just, just keep coming back. Every time I see some seed sprouting, three weeds pop up as well. His wife who was now pregnant, and the pregnancy nearing the end. There was a mixture of both joy and dread. Joy because a child was coming into the world, But the dread of childbirth, she had never gone through anything like this before. In fact, no one had. This would be the first birth in human history. Adam turned to his wife and said, I miss the days of Eden, the days where we could just eat from any tree in the garden, no thorns, weeds, curse. Life was so perfect, but we didn't even realize it. In a matter of weeks, Eve would experience the pain of childbirth, as foretold by God in Genesis 3. But when the child was born, they couldn't contain their joy. Eve saw the baby and said, let's call him Cain, Cain meaning gotten. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The parents had such high hopes and such huge expectations. And as they saw their little baby, questions raced through their mind, questions that every parent would ask. What would this child be like? Who would he be? What would he do? And as they looked at this baby, they wondered, would this child be the one to crush the head of the serpent and bring us back to the garden? Would this child be the promised one? The promised one, as we heard last week in Tim's sermon, the answer to all of our longings, the fulfillment of all God's promises, and the path to lead us all the way back to Eden, all the way home. And that's the big question we're going to look at this afternoon. Who is the snake crusher? What is his identity? This is a question that's revealed throughout redemptive history as God, through redemptive history, progressively pulls back the curtain and shows us more and more the identity of the promised one. So come with me on a journey, a journey of biblical theology as we trace, as we go from the book of Genesis to the book of Isaiah. This is the second in the three-part Christmas series called The Promised One. Last week, Tim preached from the first Christmas text in Genesis chapter three. And in that message, Tim, in that message, we went all the way back to the beginning of human history. Before Adam and Eve found themselves in the mess that they were in, we have to remember life wasn't always like that. The world was a very different place in the beginning. In Act 1 of human history, it was the very good beginning. Not just good. If you remember, at the end of the six days of creation, God saw all that he had made and said it was very good. God made man upright, mankind upright in his image to reflect his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Mankind was made not just glorious, but good. And you remember some of those crazy examples that Tim talked about. Like the woman named Jeanette. Jeanette, you could give Jeanette two random 13-digit numbers, and she can multiply them in her head in less than 30 seconds. 13 random random numbers. It's really faster than that, because she takes about half of that time to tell you the answer. And Jeanette really gives us a glimmer of what humanity, what we are capable of. But all of that changed in Act Two: the fall of creation. You see, Adam had everything going for him. He had the perfect wife, the perfect work, no sinful nature, and only one rule to obey. So it's all the more shocking that Adam would rebel against his creator, be cursed, and then be exiled out of the garden. And since the fall of humanity into sin and rebellion, there's been the need for the promised one. A couple weeks ago, we, we heard about the horrors of the mass shootings in California. Senseless violence. And then people escaping the, the, the mass shooting to go back to their homes that were being destroyed by these raging wildfires in California. Or maybe the civil war in the country of Yemen, a civil war that's left thousands of people dead, many of them civilians, many of them children, because of war and famine. And we could go on and on to see how broken, how messed up this world really is. I don't know if you believe in the Bible or not, but we all know that there's something terribly wrong with this world, and we have a longing deep inside that for it to be made right. How do we explain this? How do we explain this knowledge? There are many people here who think that we're just byproducts of evolution, that we are just simply a cosmic accident in a universe ruled by chance. But in a chance universe, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no moral good, there's no moral evil. In a chance universe, there's only luck. I guess the dice came out our way. That's why we're all here and not just still floating in some primordial sludge. There's only luck and survival of the fittest. But that way of understanding the world is hopelessly flawed because it can't explain why we know that there's something wrong with the world, something morally and spiritually wrong with this world, and why we know it needs to be made right. And the Bible answers those questions, and it fits reality as we really know it. And the Bible comes to us in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of sin, rebellion, and destruction, and curse, and gives us a glimmer of hope. We saw that in the first Christmas text in Genesis 3. And in that first Christmas text, we saw that there would be conflict. God promised conflict between good and evil, between two sides, the side of the serpent, the side of evil, and the side of the woman, the side of good. And every human being that would be born since then would belong to one of two sides. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity, hostility, between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a promised one, the offspring of the woman, who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent and destroy all evil. But Satan, the serpent, will bruise or crush the heel of the woman's offspring, delivering some kind of mortal wound. And this promised one, the offspring of the woman, is the answer to all of our longings, the one who will take everything wrong, everything broken, everything evil in this world and make it right. So the promised one brings an end to all hurricanes, earthquakes and natural disasters, raging wildfires. The promised one brings an end to all disease and death. The promised one brings an end to all hatred, murder, racism, violence and abortion. And the promised one will bring an end to all sin and all suffering. But when Adam and Eve heard about this promised one, they didn't know where or when or how, how God God was going to keep this promise, but they did have a person to look forward to, a person, a promised one. So when the first son was born, the first child was born, Cain, they named him after the Hebrew word gotten. Eve said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. When this first son, this first child was born, there was so much hope and anticipation. They couldn't have helped but to ask the question, would this be the promised one, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent? Adam and Eve had a second son named Abel. Both boys grew up. And in the course of time, Cain offered an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, and Abel offered from the firstborn of his flock. Abel's sacrifice was accepted by the Lord, but Cain's was rejected. Consumed with anger and jealousy, however, Cain rose up and murdered his brother, the first recorded murder in human history, a man murdering his very own brother. Sadly, Cain wasn't the promised one. In fact, he was the opposite. He was the offspring of the evil one, offspring of the serpent. And after that first murder recorded in human history, humanity would enter this long downward spiral that would lead to worldwide judgment and exile. We we would see that with the flood, worldwide judgment for sin. We would see that at the scattering of humanity at the Tower of Babel. Worldwide judgment for sin. And yet, even as human history enters this tailspin, the question remains. Who is the promised one? What is his identity? How would God bring about the fulfillment of all of our desires and all of his promises? So thousands of years would pass. And in Genesis chapter 12, God would choose a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham, as a man of faith. In his word, Genesis 12:1 through3. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last part is so key to our understanding of the promised one. In you, in Abraham, in Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Which means the curse given in Genesis 3, the curse on mankind, the curse on women, the curse on creation, all those curses will be reversed. We learn a little bit more about who the promised one will be in this passage of Scripture. Who will be the answer to all of our longings and be the fulfillment of all God's promises? Maybe it's Abraham. Maybe it's Abraham. Maybe Abraham is the promised one who will bring God's people back into the garden to be with God. Abraham was a man of faith. He trusted God. But Abraham also faltered in his faith. He lied. There were times he didn't trust God. He took matters into his own hands. Despite being a man of faith, he was also deeply flawed. And Abraham leaves us anticipating something, someone more for the promised one. Abraham is a type, a foreshadow. Abraham, when we say he's a type, he's a foreshadow, it means that Abraham points to someone, something beyond himself. And we see that all throughout redemptive history. There are people, there are places, there are things in redemptive history that point beyond themselves to a person, a place, a thing that is greater, more glorious. Abraham is an appetizer. You know what an appetizer does, right? You go, you go to a nice Five-star restaurant, you order an appetizer, an entree, and dessert. The appetizer's good, but you don't want to fill up on appetizers because there's more to come. And Abraham leaves us longing for more. There's more to come. But this much we know, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. So the promised one isn't any offspring in the world, has to be an offspring, has to be a son of Abraham. Abraham. So Abraham would become the father of Isaac, who would become the father of Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Fast forward 400 years, Moses takes those 12 tribes of Israel, delivers them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Joshua would come and bring the nation of Israel into the promised land of Canaan, and then King David would complete the conquest. That was a lot of biblical history right there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and David. But hang with me here. When we come to King David, we see God builds upon some of the foundational elements in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. He builds upon them with something called the Davidic covenant. God speaks to King David in 2 Samuel 7. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. That sounds like that promise God gave to Abraham. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That is an echo of Eden. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now there is so much in Second Samuel 7. we simply can't go through all of that, but there is one thing that I need to point out: God is fulfilling His promises to his people by making more promises. You see, our longing for rest, our rest from the curse, thorns, pain, disease, sin, suffering, and ultimately death, our, our longing for that rest comes through an everlasting kingdom. An everlasting kingdom that's better than the Garden of Eden. And this is why. You see, Eden could be lost. In fact, Eden was lost. Eden was fundamentally insecure and lost because of sin. But the everlasting kingdom, well, by definition, it's everlasting. It can't be lost. It's, it's secure. It, it, it's a kingdom from which you can't be exiled from because it's an everlasting kingdom. And so we see in the identity of the promised one, in addition to being the offspring of the woman and the son of Abraham, the offspring, the promised one, is also a son of David a son of David who brings about an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that can never be lost. You can never be exiled from this kingdom. That means every son of David born after this Davidic covenant would have created huge anticipation, huge excitement. Would this son of David, not just the son of Abraham and the offspring of the woman, would this son of David be the promised one? Solomon was the first son of David, and he had an impressive resume. The wisest king who ever lived, temple builder for Yahweh, prince of peace. Would Solomon be the promised one? Would he be the one to establish an everlasting kingdom of rest and security for God's people, bringing God's people all the way home? Well, in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we read that Solomon fell short. You see, ironically, even though he built a glorious temple for King Yahweh, later on in life, his heart turned away from Yahweh, and he worshipped idols, he worshipped other gods. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Solomon would also be a type a foreshadow of the promised one. But he would leave us longing for another king, a better king. And because Solomon was unfaithful to the Lord, his heart turned away and worshipped idols. God judged Solomon and tore the kingdom away from the Davidic monarchy. The kingdom was split in two. The northern ten kingdoms would be known as the kingdom of Israel and the two southern tribes would be known as the kingdom of Judah. So rather than instead of building an everlasting kingdom for God's people, Solomon's sin actually tears the kingdom apart. And many kings would come after Solomon. And many years later, we get to the prophet Isaiah, and we get to King Ahaz, the son of David, during a time of national crisis. So, fast forward, we're, we're in the book of Isaiah now. We're with King Ahaz. And it's a, po- it's a period of time of national turmoil and national crisis. You see, what's going on is that in the northern, the northern king of Israel, Pekah, the son of Romalia, has just formed a military alliance with the king of Syria. And so we have Israel and Syria forming this alliance for the purpose of attacking Judah conquering Judah, overthrowing the Davidic monarch and establishing another king in its place. And Isaiah comes to King Ahaz in this time of national crisis when there's a war opening up on two fronts and offers a word of hope. And Isaiah tells Ahaz that this alliance of Israel and Syria, it's not going to win. It's not going to overthrow the Davidic, um, Davidic throne. But Ahaz has a choice. He has a choice either to trust the word of God or to try to save himself. He has a choice whether to place his faith in God or to take matters into his own hands. So Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask a sign. And this sign is going to prove that the Lord will be victorious for his people and this alliance isn't going to win. How does Ahaz answer? How would you answer? Well, Ahaz refused. He doesn't want God to perform a miraculous sign. He wants to do it my way. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Isaiah rebukes King Ahaz. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, "'is it too little for you to weary men "'that you weary my God also? "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. "'Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son.' and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the promised one, the seed of the woman, son of Abraham, son of David, is also called Emmanuel, God with us. And this is huge because the most important thing that Adam and Eve lost when they were when they sinned and they were exiled out of the garden was the presence of God. You see paradise lost was paradise lost because God was lost. You see God was in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, in this holy sanctuary. Now, because of sin, they were exiled. They were now outside the garden. So God was in the garden, and they were out here. God was in there. They were out there. They were separated from the presence of God. But see this promise. Emmanuel, God with us. God will be with his people once again. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 9. So if you don't already have your Bibles open, flip back to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Israel is in anguish. Zebulun and Naphtali are in contempt. Because they're they're being conquered by another superpower on the world stage, the kingdom of Assyria. Let's look at 2 Kings 15 to 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel, Beth, Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. See, what happened in the Garden of Eden was repeating itself again. God's people would be exiled as judgment for their sin. And what Assyria did when they conquered the nation of Israel and took Israel into exile, took the northern kingdom into exile, is that they carved it up to three separate provinces that are listed here. The way of the sea, land beyond the Jordan and Galilee, And these three provinces are no longer part of Israel, no longer part of the promised land. They're part of a foreign nation. But just as Adam and Eve went into exile as judgment for their sin and God brought a word of hope, we see God doing that once again to a sinful people. Again, as Israel goes into exile as judgment for sin, God brings a word of hope. See, Israel is in anguish. Zebulun and Naphtali are brought to contempt, but that's not the end of the story because the promised one is coming. You see how gracious our God is. He doesn't leave his sinful people to perish in their sin, perish in their destruction. And over and over again, God extends grace, a word of hope, a word of promise to an undeserving sinful people like you and me. And the first group of people that God gives that word of hope to is the first group experiencing judgment and exile. See, Naphtali Naphtali and Zebulun, they were the northernmost provinces in Israel. They were the first provinces, the first tribes to experience exile, the first ones to hit by the oncoming onslaught of the Assyrian army, the first ones to go into exile. But they are the first ones to hear the word of hope. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Sounds familiar, because it's from the book of Matthew. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. God is going to reverse the curse, reverse the exile. But we need to understand what this promised one is going to do in light of that sin, judgment, and exile because God's people are disobedient and rebellious. And that's what the book of Isaiah is about, that coming judgment on both the northern and southern kingdom because of their disobedience, that judgment that rightly falls on a sinful people and yet a glimmer of hope a glimmer of hope for those who would humble themselves and trust in the word of promise, trust in Yahweh. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Ah, Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence foreigners devour your land. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is a word of judgment given to God's people. They're going to because of their sin, they're going to be treated like The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were overturned, completely obliterated and turned to dust and ash. That's how serious Israel and Judah's sin was. And yet God takes those who are walking in darkness and shines a great light upon them. God takes those who have gone into exile and are on the verge of extinction and multiplies them. God takes those who are buried under the weight of their own sin and misery and brings them great joy. And God outlines three decisive ways that He brings about that great joy in verses 4, 5, and 6. The first way He brings great joy, verse 4. For the yoke of His burden and the staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So when Israel was enslaved in the land of Egypt, they bore the yoke, the burden of slavery. And God's going to break that yoke of oppression. He's going to break the the yoke, the staff, and the rod. And it's going to be broken as on the day of Midian. This is when God raised up Gideon, one of those judges in the book of Judges, Judges 6 through 8. And God had raised up the, the foreign power of Midian to come into the land of Israel as judgment because Israel had fallen into sin. And now Midian was used as the rod of punishment for Israel. And Midian came into the nation of Israel with 100,000, 100,000 100, soldiers. They were like locusts that devoured everything in Israel. And as they were being oppressed by the nation of Midian, Israel cried out to God for help, cried out to God for deliverance. God heard that cry and raised up Gideon to save his people. And Gideon raised up an army of 10,000 soldiers to fight against this army of 100,000 Midianites. But we know from the book of Judges, God took that army of 10,000 and whittled it down to 300. And with that insignificant army of 300, Gideon defeated that entire army of 100,000 Midianites it was a glorious victory and God did that God whittled down the army to 300 to show that he should alone he alone would get credit for that great act of salvation this was an act of salvation that only God could do something that would be impossible for man and God in Isaiah says that he will act again he's going to break the oppression of sin but do it in a way that will maximize his own glory And do it in a way so that no one could take credit for it, that all credit and all glory and all honor for this salvation would go to God and God alone. And he would do it in a way that would seem very insignificant. Just like those 300 men were insignificant compared to the army of 100,000, this child, this offspring of the woman, would seem insignificant in the eyes of the world. So that's the first reason God's people rejoice. God is breaking the oppression. Second reason for joy found in verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So God's going to take war and bring it to an end, all conflict and bring it to an end, and establish peace through the promised one. You see, as great as the exodus was, as great as that deliverance out of Midian was, It was only a type, a foreshadow of a future deliverance that would be far more glorious and far greater. See, God brought about great acts of salvation. See, the Exodus was a great act of salvation. Deliverance from Midian, that was a great act of salvation, but there was no lasting peace. After those great acts of salvation, God's people would slide right back into sin and rebellion and judgment. So that's the second reason for joy. There will be a lasting peace, far greater, far more glorious than any other peace established previously. But the climax of the passage really comes with the third reason for joy in verse 6. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We see that the promised one, a son, not just the son of Abraham who brings blessing to all the families of the earth, not just the son of David who establishes an everlasting kingdom, we see his titles, his name filled out some more here. We see how he's going to be the answer to all of our longings, the fulfillment of all God's promises, the path that leads us all the way back home to to God. We're going to unpack each of those names briefly here. The promised one, the Son, is the Wonderful Counselor. And this word wonderful almost always, when it's used in Scripture, refers to God's miraculous acts, God's wonderful deeds of salvation. And one of the most important longings we we have is to know that our life has a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, Maybe you feel like you're wandering through life, or you're aimless, or you don't know what to do with your life. Who do you turn to for counsel? Where do you go for direction? Trust the promised one, the one who is the wonderful counselor, who has given us a trustworthy word, and don't lean on your own understanding, because we have this wonderful counselor. But do you know him? Do you know this wonderful counselor? Do you know the counsel that he's given to us in his word? But not only is he the wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. He is God himself. How big is your God? Do you worship and serve and love and find your hope and security in a mighty God? Or is it a God that looks kind of like you? A God with your strengths and weaknesses, your abilities? We have that mighty God a God who is strong enough to carry our hopes, our dreams, the desires for our futures. A God that we can trust our burdens with because there's no one like our God. You might be feeling weak this afternoon. You might be feeling helpless as you battle sin, as you battle circumstances. You might feel life is out of your control. Do you think about trials and tribulations in your workplace or your home or in your neighborhood, in your family. Maybe you have children who are wandering from the Lord. Maybe you have a to-do list that just keeps growing and growing. It never seems to get shorter during this holiday season. Maybe you just feel overwhelmed with life. Well, the promised one is the mighty God, and His yoke is easy, His burden is light, and we can cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. But not only is He the mighty God, He is everlasting Father. Yahweh's fatherly care and compassion is is expressed through this Promised One. Many of us are experiencing different sorrows during the Christmas season. As we enter the holidays, we remember the people who are no longer with us. We have widows who have sadly lost their husbands children among us who have lost their fathers or their mothers. We have singles among us who, who feel the pain of, of their singleness and loneliness. We have married couples here who experience the pain of infertility or miscarriage, wanting children or wanting additional children. The promised one is the everlasting Father. He knows our sorrow. He carries our grief. He not only understands our sorrows. He enters into them. And we can find security in Him, in the everlasting Father, Not upon security not upon the shifting sands of circumstances, but on Himself, because He is our rock. And the promised one bring, meets our deepest longings our desi- and desires, our deepest longings that, that we would be known for who we really are, that we would be loved for who we are. The everlasting Father is the one to meet our deepest needs. And finally, the Promised One is the Prince of Peace. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. The Promised One takes everything wrong, everything broken, everything evil in this world, takes those broken pieces and puts them back together. The Promised One puts an end to all armed conflict, all disrespect, all incivility, that we see so much in our culture, all the abuse of authority. The promised one brings an end to all conflict between a man and a wife, his wife, all conflict in the home, all conflict between humanity and work, all the thorns and the toilsome labor. The promised one brings an end to all the pains of childbirth and child-rearing. The Prince of Peace is the answer to our deepest longings for peace. Let's look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The promised one, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham bringing blessing to all the families of the earth, the son of David bringing and establishing an everlasting kingdom, This promised one is so much more. He's also Emmanuel, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, the answer to all of our longings, the fulfillment of all God's promises, and the one who finally brings us back home to Eden. But who is the promised one? This this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 raises some difficult questions that Isaiah simply doesn't answer. How will the promised one fulfill all of these promises and bring us back to Eden? The first question is, how could a human king do all of that? I mean, after King wicked King Ahaz, there would be two righteous kings of Judah, King Hezekiah and King Josiah. They were righteous. They brought about reforms, true worship of King Yahweh. But their reforms didn't last. Just like Israel... Judah will fall into serious sin and then go into exile as judgment for that sin. Humanity just keeps messing it up. This pattern that we see over and over again of sin, judgment, and exile. Sin, judgment, and exile. It's happening over and over and over again. It happened in Isaiah again. But here's another enigma. This son, this offspring of the woman is mighty God and the son of David. Mighty God and son of David. But how could a human king also be divine? One commentator puts it this way. During this era of radical reversal from gloom to joyful glory, from oppression to freedom, and from warfare to peace, it is fitting for the Davidic king who rules during this peaceful time to bear these names, For they point to the God who has brought about this glorious situation beyond the human office to King Yahweh. So how would God do that? Would it be some kind of human king given divine power? Or would it be some kind of divine king in human form? The book of Isaiah doesn't answer that. The third question that's raised is how could a holy God dwell with a sinful people? As so one commentator puts it, God is transcendent. God is perfect, infinite, and eternal. But we are created. We're sinful, finite, and mortal. But this Son, this promised one, is called Emmanuel, God with us. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet he dwells with us. People who are creatures, sinful creatures, finite creatures, mortal creatures. So this text raises three difficult questions. How could a king, human king, do all that? How could this king be both human and divine? And how could a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And those listening to the prophecy in Isaiah, they didn't have any answers, They didn't know how God was going to bring all this about, even as they would go through a horrific time of judgment and exile. They didn't have answers, but they did have the word of promise. And the faithful remnant, the righteous remnant, would exercise faith in these promises and trust the word of God, even though their eyes couldn't see its fulfillment. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And by faith, they would have trusted this word of promise. By faith, they would have trusted that all God's promises are yes and amen in the promised one. By faith, they would have believed that God is able to supply all of their needs according to the riches of the promised one. And by faith, they would have loved and trusted and served the promised one instead of sin. And that's the path that God's people walk on today, even now. And by faith in the promised one, we say no to temptation. We say no to wasting time on the internet or on our phones because we have a wonderful counselor who's given us wisdom on how to use our time and how to set aside our life as a fragrant offering to Him. By faith, we say no to cheating on our spouse because it might meet some kind of physical or an emotional need because we have a a mighty God. By faith, God's people say no to pornography, even though it might be satisfying in that moment, because we have an everlasting Father who knows our need, knows our struggles, and able to meet all of them. And by faith, we say no to anger, our need for control, because we have the Prince of Peace. And the mystery of Christmas wonderfully answers these questions in the Incarnation. We're not going to get into it today. We'll have to wait till next week to see how Jesus Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is that promised one, the answer to all of our longings, the fulfillment of all God's promises, and the path to lead us all the way back to Eden. If you are not yet trusting in this promised one, trust in him today. Trust in him today. Uh, Leo is, I'm going to take a moment to pray. Leo's going to come up and lead us in a time of communion as a response. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of promise. Help us to trust in this promised one, to love this promised one, to live for this promised one this week. In Jesus' name, amen.